bring their Bibles to church, and some people don't. Some people use their phones. Some people don't. I always say, like, get that Bible in front of you however you want to do it. Uh, get those words in front of you. Those are God's words, and those are what we are learning from today. So uh, Galatians 3, 6 through 14 is actually the passage we're going to be studying. Let me start by asking you a question, though. Have you ever had, have you ever had a relationship in your life in which you never quite knew where you stood with that person? Like maybe there's someone in your life that you work with or uh, interact with on a routine basis that uh, you just can't read them. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to read people, and you are too. And some people are just easier to read than others. Uh, and then sometimes you find yourself more deliberately interacting with the people that you can't read as well <laughs> because you're trying to get anything you can to find out where you stand with them. Uh, we had a we had a doctor in our life years and years ago. It was a man, one of Amanda's doctors that kind of had this um, impact on me, in which I never really knew where I stood with her. And she did a great job. She was a good doctor, no longer in this area any, anymore. But I'm pretty sure that doctor hated me, and I I just don't know why. You ever have someone where you're like, I, they clearly don't like me, and I and you know I'm the type of person that that bothers me. Well, I want you to like me. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it happened subtly at first. I, we'd be at a doctor's appointment, and I would just, you know, greet them in a friendly way like I would anybody, shake their hand, give them a smile, how you doing today? And I mean, the first time I did this uh, with this, this particular doctor, it was just kinda, I just got this deadpan response, right? I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Being a doctor's hard. Maybe they've had a really crummy day. It's been bad. Or maybe their dog died. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I would try to interact with them, and every, but every time, I just got that deadpan, like, are you, are you finished talking to me yet? Good. Now, we can get to the appointment, you know, and, and, and so it became like this game, you know, like I would ask the doctor a question, and, and she would only ever address Amanda, just wouldn't even acknowledge my exi existence and stuff, and so I, I was, every time Amanda had an appointment with this one doctor, I'd be like, hey, I want to go to your appointment, because today's the day, I'm going to win her over, <laughs> I'm going to give her the old Parman charm. Right? I'm going to be extra friendly, hospitable. I'm going to talk about things I think she's interested in just to get anything, any sort of response out of them that I can. And every time, the more I tried, the more nothing I got in return. And, uh, like I said, she ended up, uh, you know, shutting her practice down and moving out of state across country. And I'm thinking, I, I can't help but think it's because of me. Did I do something? Is it because I'm a man? Is it because I'm a pastor? Sometimes that really weirds people out when you tell them you're a pastor. That goes really good or really bad for you. You don't really know. I don't know what, what she thought about pastors. And so, anyway, I just never really knew where I stood with that person. And it's really frustrating when you don't know where you stand with somebody. I bring that up because I think a lot of people today, even in uh, the, the Christian sphere, they, they just aren't really sure where they stand with God. They can't read God well. They, they have all of these cultural assumptions about God mixed with a lot of uh, biblical views of God, and, and, it's, and it's a swirling mess of confusion trying to figure out who he is, and so they just don't know where they stand. And, and that becomes a very frustrating and discouraging thing for people. And so they get frustrated with the church and get frustrated with religion and things like that. I don't know if God likes me or not. I can't really tell. How do, we, how, do we, how do we think through that? Well, you know, I'm a relatively nice guy. We, that's what we say to ourselves, but I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I, but I think we're good, you know, probably. 
They'll phrase it like that. Or I've heard people say like, well, you know, I've made my peace with God. And that one really fascinates me. I'm like, how'd you do that? Do tell. How did you make your peace with God? How'd you figure that out? Well, if you consider yourself a Christian here today, the Bible is what informs our beliefs. And the Bible is a book of information that helps us to know exactly where we stand with God at all times, precisely where we stand with God. It gives us the set of parameters that we use to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him and how that works. And so today we're going to get into some of those parameters because they're God-given parameters so that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to get frustrated. Where do I stand with God? Where does he stand with me? It's no wonder that the book of Galatians that we're studying today is so popular amongst Christians because it's this really concise synopsis of those parameters and, and, and where we stand and how we know we stand there before God. It's often we just, sometimes we just oversimplify things uh, to the point in which it's counterproductive. We tell people to come to church and we say, hey, believe in Jesus. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. And so a lot of people are just like, well, I want to be a Christian. I'll do that. That sounds good. That sounds like the good thing to do. That's what they're all harping on. And so people do that. They may come down and, and, and repeat a prayer. They may sign a card. They may make some sort of commitment before people and profess, yes, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But do they know what that means? Do they really ever know the details or the parameters by which that is the case, that you even need a Savior and that he is qualified to be that Savior? How does that work? How does that function? Why is he this Savior that we call him? I love it when people start asking those detailed questions. That's when I get really excited, when people start to get critical as to what they believe and asking things like that because the Bible is full of answers to those questions. That's why we have it, to inform our faith. I don't really want culture to inform my faith because culture is always a changing, evolving, swirling mess. There's just nothing you can quite ever grab a hold of that has any sort of consistency whatsoever. But God's word has, has stood the test of time, and it's consistent, and it's the same, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and so this is what we grab a hold of, that we can have that security and know what we know and why we know it, right? And so it, the, the church in Galatia was receiving, the church is, remember there's multiple churches in the area of Galatia that are receiving this letter. There was some false teaching surfacing there, and they needed it corrected. Paul was informing them that you got your gospel wires crossed. You're using the wrong parameters, or you're using the parameters in the wrong way. That might be a better way to say it based on what we've learned so far. But because they had some of those details off, they weren't living the way they should have been living. They weren't experiencing this freedom in Christ that the book of Galatians is ultimately about. They weren't living in line with what the gospel taught. They weren't living in line or in light of what Jesus had accomplished for them. So Paul's like, let me remind you. Let me remind you of the gospel that saved you. And so we need Galatians for the same exact reason that the churches in Galatia needed Galatians because we're being impacted by all of these different con contradictory teachings and things like that that swirl around in our culture, in our day, 
And if we don't all go back to that which has informed the Christian faith from the beginning, we're going to be an evolving, swirling mess just like the culture we live in. We want to come back to this truth and be corrected by it, be willing to be corrected by it. We don't know it all. We don't have it all figured out. We need to keep coming back to this truth. That's what we're doing today. And where we left off in Galatians, we saw that it was a very heated exchange here. Paul is angry. There is a righteous anger that accompanies this letter because they had turned their back on what he had originally taught for years in that area. And so he, he asked those five rhetorical questions that have very obvious answers. We studied five of those questions last week, and he is clearly fighting for truth in this letter. So we're going to take 6 through 14. We're actually going to reread that fifth rhetorical question and then get into the details. And really, my sermon can, can be summarized in these three points. Here's the three points in this sermon today. Point number one is salvation is through faith, and it's faith in the promises of God. That's what we're going to learn first. The, the, the second point that Paul makes to us is there is an alternative, but you don't want it. And the third point is this, Jesus is our promise from God that secures our salvation. So let's study that first point. Salvation is found through having faith in the promises of God. And it's always been that way. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right. Paul's like, you want to argue about faith versus works? Let's do this. He's ready to do it. He's been doing it here the first couple of chapters. But that's, that's the rub, right? Some people are thinking that their works play a role in their salvation. Some people aren't. Who's right? You know that argument still exists in Christianity today. A lot of Christian churches will say, yes, your works do play a role in salvation. And other churches say, no, it is grace alone. It's, it's grace through faith that saves you. We're one of those, by the way. I hope. Because that's Paul's whole argument here. And he's making this point to them by going all the way back to Abraham this time. He's going back to the OG. <laughs> the first Hebrew. He's like, let's go back to Abraham and, and consider this. Was Abraham saved by works of the law? Or did he have faith on the promises of God? It can't be both. Which is it? So now we could spend all day on Abraham. We could just go back and study Abraham for, for weeks um, but we're not going to do that. I, I want the argument that Paul's making here to land just as he delivers it. And so Abraham's argument, though, it struck a death blow to any sort of works-based argument. It's a, the ultimate death blow. He just goes right for the jugular whenever it comes to this usage of Abraham from the Old Testament because nobody who knew anything about Judaism would have ever argued that Abraham wasn't one of God's people. As a matter of fact, if you were a Jew, you would connect your lineage all the way back to Father Abraham. That was part of it. That was part of your identity, who you were. By the way, it's part of our identity too, but I'm, I don't want to get the car to the head of the horse. But God's promise to Abraham, that's what Jews counted on. They were depending on this. And so he goes right to Abraham. You think you're saved by works of the law? You think you're saved based on your performance? That's not how it was for Abraham, remember? And they're like, 
yeah, no, I, I don't know. Tell us, Paul. That's kind of where he's getting him cornered. They would never deny that Abraham was not a child of God because they believed they were a child of God based on their lineage back to Abraham. But he's pointing out here works of the law didn't play a role in his salvation. As a matter of fact, there was no law at all whenever Abraham received this promise for God from God. And that's the point. That's why Paul's bringing it, bringing it up. You want to argue about circumcision? You're going to tell these Gentiles they're saved only if they're circumcised and follow all of these dietary laws? Their performance plays a role in that? Why would you do that? Abraham didn't do that. He had faith in God. Circumcision didn't even happen until a decade after the promise Abraham received from God. The law wasn't received until over 400 years, as we'll learn here in Galatians. Paul will, will remind us of that fact. 400, over 400 years after Abraham received that promise. So before the law, before circumcision, there was just a promise. The grace of God showed up in the life of Abraham. Abraham didn't woo God into his life by any sort of work of the law because it didn't exist God showed up in his life, and he did so to make a promise. And Abraham believed it, and that's how Abraham was saved. You know, your homework text, every Sunday you come to the journey, although I didn't do it last week, I normally always give you a homework text that you can take with you and read this afternoon or some, some way, uh, shape, or form throughout your week just to have a little devotional time to complement what we studied on Sunday. Read Genesis chapter 12. If you really want to get thorough, read 12 through 15. But Genesis chapter 12, you can get into a lot of information about Abraham. And if you think about it, the fact that Abraham shows up in, in Genesis chapter 12, I mean, our Bible has a lot of information in it, right? There's a lot of pages in there. And it, it only takes getting to chapter 12 in the Bible that you get to Abraham. Not a lot has happened up until that point. And, but you could summarize it like this, like God's God creates everything, and it's good, and then man sins and corrupts everything, and it's bad. That's kind of what's happening up in those 12 chapters. And in the, then in the midst of all of that bad, God shows up, and he makes a promise to redeem his people through the lineage of Abraham. He just shows up, and he preaches good news to Abraham. He preaches a gospel to Abraham. Typically, we don't think of that word in terms of the Old Testament, but the gospel is something that begins in Genesis, and we learn throughout Scripture to its conclusion in Revelation. God shows up and, and preaches a gospel to Abraham, and it's a promise to redeem through his lineage. Nothing special about Abraham. God just plucked him out of the earth and made a promise to him. Here's what it sounded like. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He goes on to say in Genesis 15, 5 through 6, here's one you might be more familiar with. And he brought him outside, that is God brought Abraham outside, and said, look toward the heaven. And the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then listen to this. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's what we just read in Galatians. That's what Paul was quoting. 
It was counted. That belief in the promise of God was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you're one of those people who takes notes or circles things in your Bible and highlights things and, and just writes all over every page like I do, you should be circling that word counted. That's the word that really helps us understand the meaning of Paul's point. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was seen as righteous before God based on that belief. And that belief, through that belief, righteousness was counted to him or credited to his account. That word counted is so important because it wasn't that Abraham was righteous on his own. As a matter of fact, when you go back and read Genesis 12 and, and you get into the details about Abraham, you'll see very quickly how ungodly that man was, how many mistakes he made. His flaws are all over the pages of Scripture. And that's so that we know he wasn't what was righteous. He wasn't righteous before God based on his performance. His performance was bad. Righteousness was credited to him. It was counted to him through that belief, through that trust and that faith and that promise. It's the same for you and I, folks. That's how this works. Despite his flaws, he decided to believe God. He, he trusted him, and he was counted as righteous through that faith. Abraham is basically like, oh, he knows it too. I'm not telling you anything he doesn't know. I'm a mess. But if you want to bless the whole earth through my lineage, that's up to you. Here we go. Now, Paul's point is uh, going to be that the true lineage of Abraham is through faith because he is a man of faith. Here's how he says that in verses 7 through 9. Here's how Paul says it. Know then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we come from a tradition of faith that goes all the way back to Abraham and that promise. We find our identity through that promise as well, right? God said he's going to redeem his people through his lineage, and now through faith we are a part of that lineage, aren't you? Is that how you think about faith? That's how we're instructed to think through it. We're taught that from our time in VBS growing up. You know those songs that we never understood at the time and then grow up and we think about what in the world does that mean? Then we get into books like Galatians and it, oh, that's why we sung that. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. What's that mean? I, don't know. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right? You sing that in VBS, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm singing. <laughs> what does that mean? Why are we saying this? That's to gather kindling in the minds of our children, right? That when the Holy Spirit would impact us later in life and light a fire of belief in life, that we have that kindling, that the flame would be big. Right? So that second point is really important. This is my second point. There is another way. You, if, if you insist upon works to the exclusion of faith, all right, let's talk about it. There is another way, but you don't want it. And that's Paul's point. 
You have to come up with your own righteousness. If righteousness is not credited to your account, then you have to come up with the righteousness that's in there. So how do you do that? How in the world are you going to get the righteousness that isn't from God? What are you going to do? Well, you've got to be perfect. That's what Jesus would say. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How are you doing with that? How's that going for you? Are you perfect? Have you been perfect? Any, any hands? Nobody that's been perfect in here, right? Even, even non-believers know that. To err is human, they'll say. Because right? we all know we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. These are the parameters, though, that we are given here when we think of our relationship to God and where we stand. We're given parameters uh, to, to think through this, to determine where we're at. And the parameters, it, it's, it's God's law. That's the parameters that the Bible has given us. And Paul says, if you want to be perfect, that's fine. Follow the law perfectly. And of course, any thought of trying to follow the law perfectly is really defeating because we can't be good for five minutes, it seems like. Right? And then we think about the way Jesus talks about the law in the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount. He, he elevates what the law asks of us, right? It's not just don't commit adultery. If you even think about a woman... Let's believe in your heart you've committed adultery. Jesus, when he talks about the law, he raises the bar. You want to talk about murder? If you're angry with someone, it's, it's, it's murder. That's the path. That's where murder begins. You're on the path of murder. You're committing murder when you're angry with someone. You know, it's, 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 he, he elevates that. So Paul's reminding the people of Galatians, you think your works save you? Then be perfect. That's it's a curse when you think of it like that. And that's exactly the word that Paul uses to describe following the law or being under the law. He describes it as a curse. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul has this contrast there's either law or grace, folks. It's either the righteousness of God or it's your righteousness. Which is it going to be? This is a black and white issue. Christians really want to make this a gray area. But to Paul, this is black and white. You know, Christians will be like, well, it's actually this synergistic relationship with God. And, and uh, it's the grace of God plus your good works. It's, it's my own merit plus the faith that uh, God has come a certain distance, but I gotta, I gotta meet him there somewhere. It's not halfway, but it's like 99% and 1%. You know, we try to really, well, I'll give God most of the credit, just not all of it, right? No, Paul's like, you can't mix that. You don't get to blend that stuff. This is a black and white issue. You gained favor with God through grace, by grace through faith, or you gained favor with God through your own works. Which is it? These are the parameters. Don't kill the messenger. If you choose the path of works, beware. If you insist upon thinking about your works as a means of salvation, you are in trouble. Paul's not the only one who talked about it like this. You look at the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one point becomes guilty of the whole thing. That's how, that's how James says it. See, like, he's saying, like, okay, you know how we all are when we think about our performance. We want to compare ourselves to the worst example possible. Hey, you know, I'm not the murderer. I never killed anybody. 
Well, have you told a white lie? Yeah. Have you lied before? Well, you're guilty of the whole law. You're just as bad as the murderer, right? You're guilty. Right? You didn't live up to the law. He didn't live up to the law. You're both in the same boat, right? So, so that, that's what professing Christians a lot of times overlook until you start to get in the weeds of one of these epistles in the New Testament. You know, again, we, we like to gauge our performance by looking at the murderer. At least I'm not that bad. Now, some sins are worse than others. No one's arguing against that. But if, you're, if you've committed one of them, you're condemned. You've, you're guilty of the whole law. You're guilty. That's what the law has shown you. Paul's like, you don't want to go that way. I like how the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes sums it up. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, there is not one righteous man on earth who continually, continuously does good and never sins. Not a single person continuously does good. Eventually, you're going to mess up. And that eventually is usually a very short span of time, right? You're, we're more, more familiar with how Paul phrases it in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you can say to me, Cody, I'm going to compare my life to yours, and here's what I've determined. I go to a better church than you go to. I, I hear better preaching than what you can even produce. I, I uh, serve more. I give more. I had a more timely baptism than you did. I come from a lineage of believers that would put your family to shame. You can say all those things to me, and it may very well be true. It probably is. But if you've sinned one time, you and I are in the same exact boat. We're under the curse of the law. It doesn't matter how good of a track record you've got, how many good deeds you've done, how impressive your life looks. You and I, we're in the same exact boat when it comes to how we think of ourselves before God. We're both sinners so, again, these are the parameters we're, we're given. You want to take the path of works? You want to incorporate that in your salvation? Take it all the way. You're going to get condemned really, really fast. There's no hope there. The law can't save you. Choose faith. Look at verse 11 and 12. Here's how Paul says it. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's like, you don't get to mix those two together. Nice try, but no cigar. The law is not faith. We are talking about two different things. There is the law and there is faith. Christianity is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been relieved from the burden of having to fulfill that law. The law never saved a single soul ever in the history of humanity. No one was ever saved by that law. They were only ever saved by grace. And when we think about our salvation, this is how we think. And this is my third point. Jesus is our promise from God that secures our salvation. Jesus is our promise from God that secures our salvation. Here's how Paul says it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This gospel is a gospel of redemption. We've been redeemed from that burden. We've been redeemed 
from any thought of trying to be good enough in order to be accepted by God. And Jesus is who has redeemed us. Is that how you think about your Christian faith? It better be, or you're not going to have hope. You're not ever going to feel secure. You're always going to think there's a chance. I've had a bad day, so it's, it's a worse chance today. And it's, we're delusional when we start thinking about this. We're not thinking in the right parameters. We're not thinking in the right way. Paul's like, think of it this way. You're all under this curse. We are all under this curse. We've been tainted by sin. The, the, the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the first pages of the Bible, it has infected all of mankind, all the way to you and I. And we, just like them, have, have fallen short of the glory of God. It's a curse, but Jesus became that curse for us. Did you hear that wording there? Paul uh, makes us aware of this penalty that they all knew of. If you break the law, there's a penalty. The wages of sin is death. That's how he says it in other books of the Bible, like Hebrews, right? But he's referring to a verse in Deuteronomy. For it is written, he says, now he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you broke the law in the Old Testament, and it was a really important one, and, and, and the, 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 the sin it was a really, really bad sin, there would be an execution for that sin. And so their form of execution, though, is not uh, being hanged, right? It's stoning. And so whenever somebody would say, murder someone unjustly or commit adultery, you would be stoned to death. And I just can't think of a more awful way to die than, than being... Uh, mobbed by a group of people and having stones throw up, thrown at me until I die. I mean, I, I say this every time I mention stoning. You could only hope Nolan Ryan was in that crowd, that you could just be taken out like that. But I just bet you nobody had that good of an arm. And so you would just be beat to death with rocks. And what they would do is after they had this dead body lying there, they would take it and they would tie it to a tree or a post just for the rest of the day. And that that would serve as a warning to everyone. The wages of sin is death. There is a penalty for committing a sin. It, and it's, it's, you're cursed. And so Paul's making this very clear connection for us here, connecting us to the, the crucifixion of Christ, how he was hung on this tree. And, and in that act of atonement, he became a curse for us. He took the penalty that every single one of us deserves because every single one of us is guilty of falling short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty of breaking the law. We can't even get through the Ten Commandments, a single one of them hardly, especially when we look through them uh, of the, through the lens of the New Testament and, and Jesus' teaching. We're cursed. We're cursed. We deserve a penalty. And so Jesus took that penalty upon himself. He became a curse for us. We're the ones who have fallen short, not Jesus. We're the ones who can't live up to the law. Jesus can. We're the ones who are sinners and are cursed. Jesus wasn't cursed, but he became that curse so that you and I could be saved from the penalty that we deserve. Condemnation. That's how we're supposed to think about our salvation through Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a really famous verse here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became that curse for us, and then we become the righteousness that he earned during his life. That's God's promise. So the Christian religion, it isn't this get-it-together-or-else religion like every other religion. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions. That's what I wish people, especially people who weren't Christian, could understand about the Christian faith and what's taught in Scripture. They're, they usually base what they know about Christianity on, on the culture and things like that. And that's kind of the swirling rumor about who we are. This is a get-it-together-or-else religion. And when you get into the pages of Scripture, you get into the details, the weeds of what the gospel is and how it works and why we're saved, this is not a get-it-together-or-else religion. Matter of fact, thinking that you can be self-righteous is a condemning endeavor. It says that explicitly over and over and over. You think you can work up what it takes to be good enough to be accepted and loved by God forever? You are wrong. It says that that mentality is especially wrong, but because people don't go to the Bible to inform what Christianity believes and doesn't believe, people don't know that. So we have to teach it. We have to keep coming back to it. It's prone to wander. We're prone to wander from it, right? We learn very explicitly God knows that we don't have it all together. He knew Abraham didn't have it all together. He knows you don't have it all together. And you're not going to get it all together. You're flawed. You're imperfect. You're tempted to think you're good enough sometimes when your performance has been well, but you're wrong. You're tempted to think that there's no way God can save you because you've been bad recently. You're wrong. See, that's how the law works. That's how the curse of the law works. It levels the playing field. It cuts us all down. There's no salvation there. This gospel was preached to Abraham in chapter 12 through 15 in Genesis. And that same gospel, the essence of that gospel, is what we trust and have faith in today. Right? So that we can know right where we stand with God at all times. You can know exactly where you stand with him. You don't have to wonder. You don't have, there's no guesswork here. We are told explicitly. We're given words to know so that we can learn, we can read, we can understand, we can comprehend God. We can know enough. We know that we are saved through faith alone. You want to talk about the lineage of Abraham? You want to talk about the, the, the descendants, the stars in the sky? You're numbered amongst those descendants when you have faith and trust God in what he says. Abraham trusted God then when it came to that promise. And we trust God now and his promise through his son. His son entered his creation and did enough. His works are completely sufficient. We're told that everything that needs done in order for us to be justified and right with God has been done. It's finished. It's over. Our faith in what Christ has done is enough right now forever. It atones for your sins past, present, and future. It's enough right now, and we can know forever. I don't need to look at my works to understand my standing before God. I don't need to consider my pedigree and where I came from and my experiences growing up. I don't need to think about my history and the mistakes that I've made or didn't make. That doesn't factor into my salvation. Those things can be signs and things that we consider to evaluate different aspects of our faith. But when we think about salvation, our standing before God, we don't incorporate those. 
or we're not thinking rightly. Jesus became a curse for us. His righteousness is credited to our account. We don't woo God into our life just like Abraham didn't woo God into his life. We don't muster up the strength to be loved by him just like Abraham didn't muster up the strength. We didn't live up to the law enough or count on things like circumcision just like Abraham didn't count on those things. So no, we don't count on our baptism right now to think my salvation is secure. That would be going against the very essence of the argument that Paul has over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. We think about Christ alone. You want security? Think about Christ. Meditate upon him. Have, have faith. Just trust God that it's enough. And that righteousness that he obtained in his life is imputed to you. It's given to you. And when you stand before God, you can stand with confidence that Christ was enough. You are justified. You are loved by him. And when you begin to think that way, it changes how you interact with this world. It changes how you have compassion for people, how you treat them, how you view them. Because, again, the law has leveled the playing field. We want to share this hope. And we want to share this gospel because this is the, 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 the gospel that was preached to Abraham and it's the gospel that's still being preached today. We are saved by the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that our works don't play a role in our salvation. If I had to put hope in that, Lord, I would be at a loss. Was my baptism right? Was it timed perfectly? Did I, did I get that good enough? Did I, was I nice enough? Was I kind enough? Did I, did I do enough good? Did I tip the scales? Oh, Lord, thank you that we don't have to live under such a curse, a burden, where we come to you and your burden is light. You saved us, and you provided every work necessary for that to happen. As the great reformers used to say, the only thing we've contributed to our salvation is the sin that necessitates it. Lord, thank you for, for your gospel that informs our faith and help us to correct what we think we may know through the information that you've given us, Lord, your word. Help us to make much of who you are uh, based on what it says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.